Welcome to the 12th and probably final COVID-19 and skiing edition of the Storm Skiing Podcast. You know, I started this series last spring, just after the COVID shutdown, to really try and understand what was happening and how skiing would manage it. Nearly a year later and a few months into the season, most of those questions have been answered. But I wanted to do one last episode to take a close look at Vermont, the most important ski state in the Northeast, and the one that's been most impacted by travel restrictions and other factors. First, though, my partners. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large-format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. I got the first issue in November, and it is incredible. This is more of a work of art than a magazine. The thing is huge, first of all. The quality of the writing is unreal. Huge, amazing photos. This is not like anything else with snow sports media. It is very deep. The content is varied and surprising, and it is incredibly well-conceived. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com, and you will get a PDF of that first issue as the crew works on issue 195, which is due out this spring and which takes a deep dive into the heart and soul of mountain culture at a time when newcomers, locals, and dirtbags are learning how to coexist in this new era. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. The Storm Skiing Podcast is also brought to you in part by Helly Hansen. You all know conditions in the Northeast can be unpredictable. And when you ski every week like my family does, you need to be prepared for anything, especially this year when your car is your base lodge. That's why we are rocking Heli Hansen gear from head to toe to keep us warm and dry no matter what Mother Nature throws at us. Heli Hansen gear is ready for anything because professionals who brave the world's harshest environments have been integral to the development of the brand's gear. This season, I am gearing up in the Alpha Leafa Loft jacket. And the difference between this and other ski jackets is obvious the second you put it on. It is decked out with a Helitech waterproof, windproof, and breathable outer layer. It is lightweight and incredibly warm, even on the coldest days. In my old ski jacket, I had to double up my base layers, not with the Leafa Loft. I was out last Friday, and the temp never got over 4 degrees. I didn't even notice. Seriously. This thing is that good. Plus, the life pocket, which stays two times warmer than a normal ski jacket pocket, keeps my phone from dying while I'm on the mountain all day long. If you want to get yourself new gear or know someone who needs to refresh their ski kit, visit the Heli Hansen in Boston or Burlington, Vermont, and mention this Storm Skiing Podcast ad to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because that's the year they were founded. That's right, more than 140 years ago. Yeah, I said it, and I'll say it again. Vermont is the most important ski state in the Northeast. It has the best group of mountains. It typically gets the most snow. It gets more skier visits than any state other than Colorado, California, and Utah. Well, most years it does. There's some serious doubt that Vermont will get anywhere near those numbers for the 2020-21 to ski season. And there are a number of reasons for that. First, Canada is closed. Second, the state has strict quarantine requirements for out-of-state visitors. And third, even when the snow is good, which thankfully lately it has been, the state has set limits on how many skiers can visit a mountain on any given day, all of which is adding up to a very challenging season for Vermont ski areas. How are they dealing with this? 
What does this mean for the future? To find out, I looked up Molly Mahar, president of Ski Vermont and the person best positioned to understand how COVID and everything that goes along with it has been impacting Vermont's ski industry as a whole. Let's hear it. My guest today has been the president of Ski Vermont since 2018. Ski Vermont is a not-for-profit trade association founded in 1969 to help create a legislative, economic, and social environment in which the state's ski industry can grow and prosper. Ski Vermont serves 20 alpine and 30 cross-country resorts in three major areas, governmental affairs, marketing, and public affairs. Prior to taking the top job at Ski Vermont, she was vice president of marketing and sales at New Hampshire's Loon Resort where she worked for 12 years in a variety of roles. And she has also worked at Vermont's Bolton Valley and Sugarbush. Molly Mahar is my guest. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me today, Stuart. Molly, I haven't had a chance to ski Vermont yet this season, but I've been watching the snow and it looks like you're having a great year after a slow start. Have you had a chance to get out and enjoy it a little? I have. Actually, I was out yesterday. Um, I haven't gotten out as much as I would have liked, but you're right. The snow is fabulous, uh, totally across the state. And um, it's it was a it was a really nice day to get out. And uh, especially with all the talking about skiing and planning for this season, it's great to get out there and actually enjoy it. Do you have a home mountain or do you try to skip around a little bit? I try to skip around and get out to as many um, of our member areas as I can in a season. Um, you know, it may be a little bit different this year, um, but uh, for example, I was I was down at uh, Middlebury College Snowball yesterday and um, had a had a great morning there. Um, the snow is fantastic as it is, like I said, across the state. Um, and I do enjoy, you know, as much as I enjoy the large areas, I enjoy getting out to the, you know, the medium and the smaller areas and, and particularly the community areas too. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of the same this year. I'm down in New York and I've just been really trying to focus on the smaller areas that maybe I'd overlooked in the past to go up to Vermont. So I've been really having a good time at those. Um, so when I first reached out to you, Molly, in mid-January, uh, the Burlington Free Press had just run an article documenting a 30 to 70 percent decline in Vermont skier visits this season. The paper chalked that up to a combination of COVID-19 travel restrictions and stingy snowfall. And at the time, only 49 percent of the state's terrain was open compared to a five year average of 77 percent in early January. Uh, those travel restrictions are still in place. But as we discussed, the snowfall has been terrific and it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. Can you update us on how the Vermont ski industry is looking compared to where it was a month ago? Well, I think you're right. The numbers in, in December were reflective of several things. The late start that many areas got due to the weather challenges that we had in the beginning of the season. Um, and also many areas waited to have more terrain open before they were able to open uh, just to make sure that people would have the ability to spread out, you know, in these in these COVID days. Uh and the travel restrictions and self-imposed capacity limits, I think, are all playing into that. You know, all ski areas are different and um, access or the lift ticket and pass line of business really make up the majority of a ski area's revenue. But we have other lines of business like food and beverage and ski school that also contribute substantially to a ski area's bottom line. And those revenues uh, really are taking significant hits this year. You know, people are really encouraged to stay outside as much as possible. So 
Um, you know, and ski areas really have streamlined what they're offering for food and beverage. Some are not offering any any food and beverage at all. Um, so it's it's we can't just look really at the skier visit number to get an idea necessarily of um, of business as a whole. I would say you know business is is certainly down this year, and uh, we'll see how it how how it shakes out. But um, you know the the more consistent snow has been really great. I, I took a look back at um, that we've had in the last month or so after a slow start. I took a look back at where we were this time last year and we had about 77% of our terrain open versus, you know, virtually everything is open right now. So, so that's, that's great. And uh, uh, snow absolutely helps. It, it seems like what you're saying is maybe there's a, uh there's a cap to the upside snow can provide because of those capacity restrictions. And you can only sell so many lift tickets, right? And in most cases, they're capping those. And you're also saying, okay, all these other lines of business that we relied on, food and beverage uh, lessons, um, in rentals that go with skier visits, those things are just not, go- there's no way to make up that ground in this season. That's right. That's exactly right. So help us understand, Molly, just how big of a deal is this downturn for the state of Vermont? Like just how big is the Vermont ski industry and how much does skiing related tourism contribute to the state's economy? It contributes a lot, um, particularly in rural areas of our state. So skiing in Vermont is a $1.6 billion industry and that's adding up direct spending by skiers and riders. Um, It's ski areas spending with their vendors and it's also the induced spending, which is ski area employees spending at a household level. So it's really quite significant, and um, we send, uh, you know, a number of, um, or we send a lot of tax dollars to the state as well. And so, you know, those those tax receipts will be will be down this year as well. Can you do you have an estimate of just how big of a drop the Vermont ski industry is looking at from that number you gave this year? Um, it's it's hard to say right now. Um, it's you know the the numbers of thirty to seventy percent. Um, I think you know we're we're less than we're we're doing better than that uh, at this point. Um, but you know it, we're still off by double digits for sure. And you know it it really varies by ski area too because some of the ski areas up in the northern part of the state, you know that do see quite a bit of Canadian business, for example, you know may be seeing you know, more hits to their business than some of the ski areas down in the central and southern part of the state. Um, but for sure, the the travel restrictions are, are definitely having, you know, that Canadian border closure and then the travel restrictions um, calling for quarantine definitely have, have put a dent in, in our business this year. Do you have a sense of what percentage of revenue comes from out of state, either from Canada or from the surrounding states? In a typical year, we see about 80% of our skier days come from out of state. And so that's why, you know, heading into the season, especially as we were starting to see case numbers upticking in the Northeast region where we get, you know, most of our our business, you know, we were seeing those travel restrictions get get a little tighter. And we were definitely concerned about that when, when we saw that happening. And it really happened pretty much as, as was forecast, but right as the ski season was getting rolling. And can you give us a sense of where those, that 80% is coming from? Is it, is it mostly Canada, New York, Massachusetts? Is it, what are the states and countries we're looking at? 
Uh, I'd say, you know, Massachusetts, uh, New York probably make up the, the bulk. And then um, uh, we see a lot of traffic from Canada, of course, especially at our northern and, and into the central part of the state. And a number of those visitations from Canada do come during the month of March, which we haven't hit yet. So, you know, we'll be we'll definitely be missing those skier days um, next uh, next month. Do you have any optimism at all that those border restrictions could be lifted by then? No, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, you know, this is definitely something that is it's a federal issue. It's not not a state level issue. And um uh, I don't see that, you know, hopefully once we get into summer, we'll see some movement there, but I don't have, I don't anticipate that we'll see that change um, by the end of the ski season. So I just want to talk a little bit about the scope of the ski industry. And you mentioned all these ancillary revenue streams like food and beverage and lessons, et cetera. Uh, but just outside of the ski areas themselves, what are the other categories of tourism that rely on skiing, the, the, the folks driving up and gassing up in their cars, stopping at uh, restaurants to eat in the, in the towns on their way there. What are those categories and how much have they been impacted? Well, it's a great question. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, there are a lot of businesses that rely on skier traffic in the winter, lodging establishments, bars, restaurants, and retail really are all affected. I don't have a, a sense of how much they have been affected um, this year so far, but, you know, I, I think that it, it is definitely, you know, they are feeling um, a downturn in their business from, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that were hoping, I think, uh, you know, as we were heading into the ski season that those travel restrictions might get relaxed and in, in, uh, in they actually went the opposite direction. And there were a number of people that bought season passes, for example, that, you know, really realized by the beginning of the ski season that they just weren't going to be able to to abide by the um, travel requirements and and asked for refunds so um, you know i think a lot of those people that are staying home are obviously not coming up to to stay in these inns and restaurants and uh you know buying um buying goods at retail the you know the many ski shops that we have up here so it's it's been a difficult year for those businesses as well and their employees Let's talk a little bit more about those travel restrictions, Molly. So Vermont has some of the strictest travel restrictions in the country, requiring a 14-day quarantine upon arrival or a seven-day quarantine with a negative COVID test. Uh, these restrictions have helped the state keep its COVID infection and death rates the lowest among the 50 U.S. states, which is a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, as you mentioned, a lot of skiers are optimistic that the state would magically relax these restrictions prior to the start of the ski season. Uh, that did not happen. Given the importance of skiing to the state's economy, did the state of Vermont consult with Ski Vermont as they were determining whether to keep these in place? Um, no, really, the travel restrictions were put in place back in June, the beginning of June, although at that time um, they weren't in place for everyone visiting Vermont. The state introduced a travel map and people um, coming from counties with, with COVID case counts of 400 per million or lower could still visit without quarantining. And then just as we were talking about earlier, just prior to the ski season, as case counts were ticking up in the in the Northeast, the map was suspended and they put in place that, you know, everybody visiting or returning to Vermont did have to quarantine for either 14 days or seven days plus a negative test. So, um, so that was something that was in place well before the ski season started. And I think, you know, sometime towards the beginning of the summer, 
um, after the travel restrictions had been in place for about a month, I guess it dawned on me that, you know, we were probably looking at a ski season, you know, going into a ski season with these travel restrictions in place. And, and that certainly did come to pass. Do you have any insight into whether Vermont could revert to a county by county map if COVID cases started to lighten up? I don't know if you have any connections to the legislature that you speak with or if you have any other insight into this or thoughts on it. Yeah, it's really the the governor and his administration that um, has been, um, you know, looking at the case counts and and really uh, putting the guidance in place for and working with businesses on their guidance um, across a number of sectors, not just the ski industry. Um, and I think, you know, they are as vaccinations, people are getting vaccinated and more and more people are getting vaccinated. Um, they are looking at, uh, you know, having the ability to revert back to some type of map. I'm not sure that it will look the same as it did um, before, but as a way to sort of start lightening up the travel restrictions as we start to, you know, move past the pandemic and and all of its challenges, but uh, don't really have clarity on what that will look like quite yet. So the restrictions are in place. It's a reality you have to live with. Does Ski Vermont have a position on this? Did you, did you try to lobby the government to do one thing or the other? No, we didn't. I mean, obviously, we knew it was going to have a huge impact on our business, but um, you know, we we and our members have fully embraced the restrictions. Um, we know why they're important. They're obviously uh, very important to keep all of our guests, our employees, and our communities um, healthy this winter. And in fact, we partnered with the state to start educating skiers, you know, starting back in the early fall, I would say, right into the season, you know, all of the ski areas um, took that pretty seriously, their, their need to have to educate skiers, both from a customer service perspective, you know, we didn't want people getting surprised and, and finding it, you know, planning a trip and then finding out at the last minute that they can't come because they didn't know what the restrictions were. Um, and also um, from a partnership with the state in terms of just being responsible and making sure that we were, you know, getting that that word out far and wide. Um, and we've done that through a number of different channels, both, you know, the individual ski areas and Ski Vermont. Um, it's something that we took pretty seriously. Yeah, for example, I, re- I had an icon pass and I received an email from both Sugarbush and Stratton saying that I had to sign acknowledging that I was aware of the Vermont ski or the Vermont travel restrictions. And that if I intended to come skiing up there, I needed to abide by those. Is the, is that email an example of the sort of educational initiative that you worked with the ski areas on to help skiers inside and outside the state understand what those requirements were? Exactly. I mean, it's part of our guidance um, that we needed to get attestations from all of our pass holders and from people purchasing day tickets as well, that they, um, just as you said, that they know what those travel restrictions are, uh, the requirements are, and that they are abiding by them. Um, so that, that again, was, was, um, was part of the guidance and also part of, you know, the education in terms of making sure that people knew what their responsibilities are. And do you think those were effective? Are you for the most part seeing compliance? Yeah, it's a tough it's a tough thing to enforce both for us and for the state, but we've really asked for um, skier and rider cooperation on this because 
Um, it is it is extremely important for us to be able to you know have a complete and a healthy ski season, which we obviously want to do. And you know the health of um, our communities, our guests, um, and our employees is is really means that we need everyone to cooperate and take these things seriously. Like if you're not feeling well, stay home. Even if you you know you do live in Vermont you know, don't ski if you're not feeling well, but um, you need to take these these travel restrictions and the quarantine requirements seriously um, because, you know, it, the, the really the ski season depends on it. And if we want to have a ski season, that's what, that's what needs to happen. And I think that's one of the things that's been important uh, going into the season as well is that skiers and riders understand that, that it's a shared responsibility. There's a number of things that the ski areas are doing, but there's a number of things that, you know, we need uh, skier and rider guests to do as well. You know, listening to uh, employee directives, reading signs, making sure that you are distancing from folks, wearing your mask, um, staying home when you're sick, all of those things. Are you aware of any ski areas that have turned folks away who have admitted that they have not complied by the quarantine requirements? Well, it is required to, you know, purchase a ticket or to use a season pass. So I am aware, I think of one instance, perhaps that a quarantine was not followed and somehow, and I'm not sure quite how the ski area did, did learn about that and, um, and did take someone's pass away. But again, it's really difficult to know if someone, and we really need to take people at their word. Yeah. The 30 to 70% decline in skier visit numbers, and, and I realize this may have changed by now, those do seem to suggest that there is widespread compliance, if not universal compliance. And I know in Canada, they just plain can't get over the border. There's really nothing stopping someone from New York from driving over the border or Massachusetts or, or New Hampshire into Vermont. Is that your interpretation of those numbers as well? Is that, okay, we can't necessarily put up gates at the border, but these lower numbers suggest that folks are adhering to this. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, as, as I was mentioning earlier with our season pass sales, you know, a lot of people were, were really hopeful that, um, that a, they would either be able to uh, comply with the travel restrictions or that they would be loosened by the time we got to the ski season. And when that didn't happen, you know, they just realized that, Hey, I'm going to need to either defer my pass to another, the next season or, or get a refund because they just realized that they weren't going to be able to do that. And I think when we look out um, at the both the self-imposed capacity limits that ski areas, you know, as you mentioned in the opening, um, you know, ski areas sold a, a number of passes and then they're really limiting their day tickets. So um, through that uh, and and also the travel restrictions, I, I think because of that, we're, we're definitely seeing that people are are responding to those and following them. And, and maybe can't come and ski Vermont this year, which is unfortunate. So the result either way is fewer skiers. Uh, as you talk to your members, is there frustration with these restrictions or do they view this as a shared sacrifice for the greater good? Or is it a little bit of both? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, they understand it. And as I said, have fully embraced it. But at the same time, you know, it is having a large effect on our business, Um and, and on other businesses around the state as well. And, and it's just tough. I mean, we've had to really shift, you know, our communications strategy this year into really one much more about education, about what you need to do, that you need to know before you go. You need to know about the travel restrictions. You need to know that, you know, inside space at ski areas is limited, you know, all of those things. 
And, you know, we were talking earlier about the great uh, snow year that we're having finally, once we turned into 2021. And, you know, a lot of a lot of the ski area marketing messages would be like, hey, we just got a foot of new snow. You should you should jump in the car and come up right away. And we've had to really shift that messaging because we can't be saying things like that. You know, we have to shift to more like, Hey, you know, we're having a great uh, season. The snow is great. Now's a really good time to, to plan a trip. Um, and here's what you need to know. And that's, you know, it's, it's difficult because we're so used to, um, you know, really, uh, you know, stoking people on how great the skiing is. And it's, it's tough to pivot from that, but we have to. And it's so necessary most years because in a lot of cases, these Southern states like New York and Massachusetts, they just don't get the snow that you get in Vermont. And so they're not thinking about it. Right. This year, they're we have it. snow all over. We got, we got a couple of feet in New York City. Yeah. And, uh, and and everyone's rabid to go skiing, but they can't get up to Vermont, uh, which is right. a bummer. Uh, but totally understand why. So I, I want to talk a little more about the Canadian travel restrictions. Obviously, those are completely beyond any of our control. Um, which Vermont ski areas most rely on Canadian business and how much has that affected them? I'd say, you know, many of the northern and central Vermont areas, a lot of folks from the Toronto area, for example, will drive, um, you know, the 10 hours it takes to get to Vermont and and they will ski the central Vermont areas. And certainly, you know, many folks from Quebec, we see them coming down um, to the northern Vermont areas. And I would say, you know, one of the areas that has been impacted the most has been Jay Peak Resort, which typically sees about 50% of its business from north of the border. You know, and they've made some great pivots there to try to uh, shore up their business, but it's been a really tough season for them. Um, and as I think I mentioned earlier, March is usually a pretty big month for Canadian visitation. That's typically when the schools have some break time. And so you know, many ski areas will be missing that business next month uh, as well. So on top of all these travel restrictions that the ski areas are adapting to, the state of Vermont did put together some very specific ski area operating guidelines that included some things like documenting every single person to enter a cafeteria and where they sat. Curious how closely Ski Vermont worked with the state to help come up with those guidelines. Uh, we worked very closely with the state uh, on those operating guidelines, uh, both for last summer. We had to have um, some operating guidelines in place to be able to open last summer. And then certainly for this winter, we put together a subcommittee of our operators to really, um, you know, write the write the guidance. And then and we did write much of what is in place now. And certainly the state, you know, tweaked a few things and added a few things. Um, but but we were we were definitely very involved in 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 creating those and you know talking through uh, the different pieces with the state. And what does that look like, Molly, from the point of view of working with the ski areas to come up with those? Do you have a representative from every Vermont ski area member, for example, that that has an opportunity to weigh in on those and suggest things and suggest changes or or do you come up with a draft and then you present it to a committee? How, how does that whole thing work and how do you work with the ski areas? Yeah, well, I um, looking at some of the guidelines, you know, starting back in the spring to get open for the summer, looking at some of the other guidelines uh, from some other um, business sectors, you know, put sort of the, the bones of the plan together. And then we, we had a, a subcommittee of our operators kind of do the heavy lifting, get on a number of calls to talk through some issues, you know, issued a few drafts, 
got that group comfortable with the guidance and then sent it out to all of our membership to make sure that they had a chance to see it, read it, ask questions, and make sure that everybody was comfortable um, before we moved that forward to the state. And then we had a small group that was that was sort of the negotiating group, I, I would say, with the state to talk through, you know, any of their questions and um, and make the case for for certain items that we had in there. Um, and and then certainly the state came back with a few additions, actually not that many, to be honest, um, which which was good. Um, and just to talk through, you know, what those the ramifications of those and uh, and move it forward. So it was a bit of a process. I mean, we started working on this probably in late July for this winter. What were those additions that the state made? Um, sort of at the last minute, and this is not necessarily the state's fault, just because, you know, as we have seen, this COVID situation is very fluid and changing all the time. We did see the requiring of attestation. So prior to that, we had had education about the travel guidelines, um, the travel re- restrictions, I should say. Um, in the guidance, and the state wanted us to make sure that um, we were collecting attestations from from everyone coming to ski. Um, so that was added really right before the guidelines were finalized, which was early November. And the other thing was the contact tracing. So we needed to uh, maintain uh, contact information for everybody that was at a ski area. Um, and actually, the inside the inside visitation was a suggest was suggested. It wasn't required. So keeping track of everybody that was in base lodges, but you know, the industry kind of went above and beyond and, and is, is, is trying to, to do that piece of it as well. Um, so, you know, those were kind of late additions. I think, you know, it wasn't that the state waited to, you know, spring those on us. It was just one of those things that as, as case counts were ticking higher, um, you know, the situation, they felt called for it. And um, so that meant that, you know, that obviously was very close to opening day for some of our ski areas. So it meant, you know, the creation of some systems that may not have been um, in existence or in place um, pretty quickly. But I would say the ski areas rallied and and got that work done. Um, Even the smaller areas, I would say um, did a great job adopting technology to help them, you know, with the contact tracing and information. And uh, to my knowledge, we have not had to supply that to the state um, at all because, you know, people are largely staying outside and skiing is is a pretty COVID safe uh, activity, fortunately. So there was no pushback to that addition on the part of the ski areas or ski Vermont. It was just, okay, this is what it is and we're going to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, we that that's really what we had to do to be able to operate this year. And um and I think, you know, we recognized the reasons for it and um you know, as I said, the timing was a little bit unfortunate. It would have been great if we had known that, you know, a couple months before opening, but um again, it's not it's not anyone's fault. It's just the way the situation uh kind of unfolded and, you know, we knew that we needed to to get those things in place and and we did. So I imagine it took a little bit of investment to adapt to these rules. Uh, can you give us a sense of of what that investment looked like and, and how onerous it may have been for some of these smaller ski areas? Yeah, the ski areas um, absolutely had increased capital um, and costs for technology to facilitate, you know, touchless transactions for, you know, advanced ticket sales, for making reservations, for ordering food. Plus, we saw a number of improvements to outside spaces. 
uh, lots of new signage that was necessary and, you know, purchasing of PPE for uh, their employees and for guests. So, um, you know, I would say many areas spent, you know, several hundred thousand dollars uh, at a minimum um, in, in cost getting ready for the season just just because of COVID. And what are some of the creative adaptations you've seen for some of these areas that maybe didn't have the resources of, say, Stowe, but had to comply and and found a creative way to adapt that? I, I think Magic in particular has been way out ahead of this and seemed pretty prepared with some creative solutions. Yeah, they, um, they added some outdoor dining. They uh, put in um, a reservations system for their um, inside spaces. So you need to book that ahead of time. Um, I would say we saw Bolton Valley pivot, uh, knowing that they weren't going to have as many visitors um, needing hotel rooms. They pivoted and used some of their hotel rooms to provide, you know, private base lodge space for folks that they could, you know, rent for the season, um, which I thought was pretty um, pretty creative. Uh, Jay Peak Resort um, selling packages with um, townhouse space and season passes for folks that could work remotely so that they could relocate really for the season and come up and spend spend the entire season up at Jay Peak. And they were very successful, um, uh, more so than they thought, in selling those packages. And then I think others have involved, you know, more resources, improving outdoor spaces with, um, you know, with heaters, with fire pits, um, windscreens, um, food trucks, um, and enabling, you know, to-go windows maybe that would needed to be constructed um, so that so that folks could just walk up and and place an order but not go inside. So the state of Vermont did have its own set of regulations, uh, but the NSAA help skiers get ahead of this a little bit with their ski well, be well guidelines. And it seems like most ski areas have adopted and adapted those. Uh, can you talk a little bit, Molly, about how you worked with the NSAA uh, to develop these and promote these among your members? Sure. Um, well, I would say that NSAA really did the heavy lifting on this, um, you know, putting together with some input, but putting putting the document together uh, and sent it around to the ski states for in, input before they finalized it. You know, this was certainly a significant undertaking to get the whole industry on the same page. Um, and they did a great job with it. I think envisioning that if we had a document that made it easier to talk about um you know, why skiing and snowboarding made sense and were very important um, at, in, in this time of COVID um, for people to get out and get fresh air and recreate and have some sense of normalcy. Um, and they, they really wanted to, to set that table for all of the states. Um, and then we were able to sort of layer under um, the specifics that each state needed. So some states really just rolled with, with that um, ski well, be well guidance. And, and that's really all there was. Whereas as we've talked, you know, Vermont has, uh, you know, 13 pages of guidance that operational guidance that we're working with um, that kind of layers under that ski well, be well. But um, it definitely got the document out to our areas to take a look at. Um, and I would say there was not a lot of changes that we had to suggest, um, just one or two things here and there. I think the NSAA team did a great job with that. Um, they had a, a huge webinar um, where they had probably, I don't know, 700 or 800 people on this webinar uh, to roll it out to the industry, answer questions. And I would say, you know, across the board, everybody was very supportive. 
Um, and that document really helped to inform the conversations about um, the industry's guidance in many states. I'm curious just in general about Ski Vermont's relationship with the NSAA. How do you work together and how do you make sure your missions are distinct enough that you're not redoing the same work across different organizations? Um, that's pretty easy. Uh, NSAA, um, well, first of all, NSAA and my counterparts across the country have been on weekly calls really since uh, the summer. And that's been extremely helpful to hear what's going on in other states, you know, what challenges other people are having, um, what successes other people are having, because we really are all in this together, both ski areas and skiers, as we talked about having, you know, shared responsibilities, but the entire industry as well. And, and that has, the, I would say the industry has shown great collaboration in figuring out how to approach this season and, and what makes sense and what works and what doesn't, what didn't work. But um, really, uh, NSAA works on national issues. So for example, you know, the SBA um, Paycheck Pr Protection uh, Program, if they have, which actually this did happen, there, you know, was some, some guidance um, that was issued that wasn't particularly, uh, you know, that made it difficult for ski areas to be able to take advantage of that program. So that's something that NSAA would take the lead on because it's a national program or a federal program. And then we would get involved in, uh, you know, lobbying, lobbying our congressional delegation to support, um, you know, those changes or our governor to support those changes that, that are trying to, that we need to get made. Um, and then just, I think, you know, general things that reach across all of the states, you know, NSAA will typically take the lead on that. Whereas, you know, we are working with our state, um, you know, the administration and our legislature on specific things that, you know, um, are affecting our ski areas here in Vermont. And then also we do sort of act as a conduit to help NSAA get some of their messaging out to our members. I mean, they definitely have a, a direct channel as well, but a lot of times we can send reminders and, and make sure that our, that our ski areas are getting their information. So it's a great um, relationship that we have with NSAA and, and I have nothing but the utmost respect for their staff. They have, um, you know, a lot of depth on their team and uh, they've been really invaluable uh, throughout this you know, the ramp up to this ski season and, and uh, keeping people connected and making sure that, um, you know, people, the ski areas have the resources that they need at the federal level. It's interesting. You mentioned that government assistance and the sort of trickiness of nailing it down. Do you, are you aware of whether Vermont ski areas were able to take advantage of those various rounds of federal assistance? Yes, a number of our areas were able to get PPP loans. Um, right now, the second draw poses some challenges, uh, and we're currently working with NSAA to lobby the um, SBA for changes that can, can help our ski areas, um, and that's something that we'll work with our congressional delegation for um, assistance and support on as well. Um, the state also because of the CARES funding that they had from the federal government where it was able to pass along some of that money um, in business grants and ski areas were able to take advantage of actually two types of grants. Um, they set aside um, some money for, um, they were the ski safety recreational grants, which helped ski areas um, make some of those improvements that we needed to make either, you know, buying more technology or improvements to outdoor spaces, 
just to be able to, um, you know, operate in a, in, a, in a safer manner in terms of COVID. Uh, and then many of our skiers were also able to access um, business grants um, for, you know, relief and recovery that came through the state from the federal government, which was helpful. You know, I, I've, I've seen some interesting themes emerge as this, the various ski areas have adapted to these guidelines and restrictions and everything else, not just in Vermont, uh, but across New England, really across the country. A lot of general managers that I've spoken with have said that, yeah, you know, this was expensive and it was kind of a pain, but we're really learning a lot because we're rethinking the way that our ski areas are operating. And some of these things might hang around after COVID is gone. As you've talked to your members, are you getting a sense for what some of these modifications may be that they're saying, okay, you know, uh, this isn't maybe the way we would have thought to do it, but we kind of like this and we're going to keep doing it this way. Well, I think the technology certainly is here to stay. And really the pandemic has been a catalyst for uh, the industry adopting it uh, even more quickly. I mean, that was certainly a trend we were seeing ahead of the pandemic, but uh, a lot of the like I said, the smaller areas were able to, um, you know, get these advanced ticket um, platforms in place or reservations platforms in place. And I think, I think we will see some of that. Uh, we'll definitely see a lot of that technology continuing and, and making the experience better. Um, I have heard uh, a couple of people talk about, you know, potentially having reservations for inside space, you know, maybe not every base lodge, but, uh, you know, there might be one or two that that they would look at, you know, limiting capacity just to to make it a, a better experience as well. And I think, um, you know, going into this season was was pretty daunting. But I feel like uh, like with any challenge, you know, once you once you get into it and work through it, um, it makes you stronger and it makes you better operators. And I think, you know, all of our guys are, are feeling that way that, you know, there were some significant challenges, but they were able to meet them. And, um, you know, that's one of the things is we've had to be pretty flexible because as you know, you know, plans on paper sound great, but once you get them, you know, into a real life situation, oftentimes things need to be adjusted or changed or scrapped. And we've seen a lot of that this year, um, but I think the ski areas have been working hard, you know, to make sure that they can make those adjustments um, to make sure that they're providing, you know, the best, um, the best and healthiest uh, experience that they can. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about how different groups of ski areas have been approaching this. And by groups, I mean, from my point of view, and maybe you have a different way of looking at this, it seems like we have three basic categories of ski areas in Vermont. And I'm curious if you've observed a difference in how these groups of operators have been able to weather the challenges of reduced tourism and increased costs from COVID adaptations. So I want to start with the larger resorts owned by out-of-state conglomerates. So you have Killington and Pico owned by Utah-based Powder Corp. You have Stowe Okemo and Mount Snow owned by Colorado-based Vail and Stratton and Sugarbush owned by Altera, also in Colorado. It seems to me as though these may have been in the best position to weather this just from a resource point of view. But how is it going for them from your point of view? Um, I think it's going pretty well. I mean, they certainly were out in front of it, uh, you know, uh, creating their own guidance within their their own companies uh, for how they were going, their areas were going to operate. And then certainly those had to 
conform to the different states in which the ski areas operate in. Um, so, you know, they just have a depth of resources that I think, you know, um, many other areas that are independently owned or smaller, you know, don't necessarily have. But I think there, as I said earlier, there there has been a, a great uh, level of collaboration in terms of sharing what works and what doesn't work. Um, and I think, um, you know, that's been really helpful for, for some of the smaller areas as well to, to get that perspective. We actually do weekly calls with, the, with our operators to talk through, um, you know, different issues that they're seeing and talk about sort of what's working and what isn't working. And, and that's been really helpful. So that the second group is you have several large independents in Vermont. And they have very loyal followings and material numbers of out-of-state skiers. And I'm talking here about Jay Peak, Smuggler's Notch, Burke, Bolton Valley, Mad River Glen, Bromley, and Magic. Uh, are they having a tougher time here or are they, are they being scrappy and getting through it? I think some of both. I mean, you know, the some of the supports like the Paycheck Protection Program has been really critical for this group. I would say, you know, they don't necessarily have the backing of of some of these bigger companies. So, you know, it's making sure that they have access to to that. um, Those funding um, supports is really important. Um, But I think, you know, by and large, these areas, as we were talking about, like with Magic um, and Bolton and Jay have done some great, a great job in pivoting um, some of their operations to be able to make the best of of what they have to work with and, um, you know, shown that scrappiness that um, will get them through this. So the third category is the little community hills that a lot of folks outside of Vermont probably haven't heard of. Uh, Places like Cochran's, Northeast Slopes, Hardack, Linden Outing Club, Brattleboro. Uh, You mentioned Middlebury Snowball earlier, which is larger, but I think mostly a locals mountain. Uh, These don't seem like they would have attracted a lot of -of out-of-state skiers during normal times. And I wouldn't be surprised if their business was largely unchanged. But what have you been hearing from them? Well, they are impacted to some degree because, um, you know, take uh, an area like Bolton Valley, for example, um, you know, they do sell a lot of um, passes. You know, they probably have more in-state business than some of the some of the other areas. Um, However, they still have had to restrict their day tickets. So it definitely is affecting their business as well, just to, uh, again, to meet those those self-imposed um, capacity limits and uh, make sure that their business is is manageable and able to support, you know, the distancing and, and, and all of those um, types of things that we need to do to operate safely. So, um so I think there's there's definitely still challenges there, although, you know, they may not rely to as great a degree on out-of-state skiers. We are seeing areas like Cochran's in Richmond, Vermont, you know, they are operating, you know, their base lodge is closed. Um, so families, you know, that are, are there need to make, um, you know, other arrangements using their cars like we're seeing at other areas. Um, so I think, you know, they've definitely had their challenges as well in terms of, I think, from a resource standpoint, you know, just getting through the all of the operating um, guidance and making sure that they can implement it. But, you know, they've risen to that challenge, too. Curious about the effects of all this on the local job market there in Vermont, uh, given the anticipated lower skier volumes this season. Did you see Vermont skiers bringing on fewer workers in general to start with? 
Um, yes. Uh, and I would say that um, it's also labor has been, you know, pretty tight this year. Um, but ski areas have some different dynamics going on. You know, they've they've needed less employees in certain areas, maybe like ski school or food and beverage. But we've needed uh, employees, you know, helping to manage lift lines and reminding people to wear their masks, um, controlling access to the inside spaces um, and things like that. So they've been able to sort of repurpose some people. Um, we've also had college kids that have been on a longer break that um, we absolutely, you know, use um, college kids in our staffing um programs as well. So there's been a, there's, you know, it's not sort of business as usual. It's not like we've needed um, all of the employees that we typically have had, but um, you know, we haven't had access to some of the groups that we, we normally would either. All right. Have you seen the Skirias bring more employees on as more terrain has opened up? Um, not necessarily. Although I think, you know, as I said, it's, it's been, it's been a tough year to recruit. And um, so I think that they're, you know, they have been looking for other employees, but I think they're doing a, a good job with maybe offering some folks that may not have their typical jobs, um, you know, if they can come in and, and work for, you know, a, a certain number of days, maybe, you know, doing parking reservations or, or something that is not typically a job at a ski area in a non-pandemic year, you know, that they're able to um, to keep their skiing benefits um, and get paid a little bit. And uh, so I think, you know, they've, they've been creative in terms of the, the programs that they've been able to, to work with some of the folks that may not have their typical jobs and uh, bring in that extra labor that they need. So looking beyond COVID, the Vermont ski industry is changing very rapidly. If you look at five years ago, Vail didn't own a single Vermont ski area and Altera didn't exist. Now Vail owns Stowe, Kimo, and Mount Snow, as I mentioned. Altera has Sugarbush and Stratton. Um, and Utah-based Powder Corp owns Killington and Pico, as we talked about. What are your thoughts in general, Molly, on so many large Vermont ski areas being owned by out-of-state corporations? I think uh, it's it's a positive development because these operators are um, are very you know these companies are very good ski area operators. Um, they do have the depth within their organizations. Um, they have access to capital, which skiing is a very capital intensive business. Um, they have really you know forward thinking and progressive marketing. Um, and, you know, when we're looking at these, you know, multi-mountain, multi-state passes, Vermont has some very strong offerings on those passes. So I think, you know, the ability to um, have more people visit in a, in a non-COVID year certainly um, is, is good for Vermont. And, and likewise, the investments uh, that these companies are making in these ski areas um, just goes to make the Vermont ski experience better. So I think I think uh, overall it's definitely a win for the state. Do you think there are risks to having so many out-of-state owners of so many of your large resorts? Well, I think you know that ski experience um, isn't for everybody. And you know the good news is we do have um, a lot of breadth of, um, offerings in the state. So, you know, for those people that, that may not embrace, you know, the larger experience, um, 
you know, we, we have other places for them to ski, but I don't necessarily see a downside. I mean, certainly if one of those, those companies were to get into trouble, you know, that could be an issue, but typically, you know, the ski area itself is not going to go away. Um, you know, it, it would just probably change hands. So, and, and I don't think that we're, we're at risk of, of any of the companies that are invested in Vermont, you know, having, getting into trouble at this point. We do have two big ones for sale right now. Well, I guess Burke's not for sale. JP is for sale. Burke is still working through some issues. Uh, regardless, someday someone will own it. Do you have any perspective on whether it would be better for the health of the overall Vermont ski industry if these mountains ended up under one of these larger ownership groups or if they remained independent? Well, I think you can look at it, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of ways. But I think, for example, we were talking about um, the ability to weather, you know, a, a, a situation like this pandemic, you know, it has been tough for Jay uh, Peak in particular, you know, they have definitely needed to access, um, you know, things like the, the Paycheck Protection Program, which thankfully that's there for them to access. And if they were backed by, you know, a larger company, they would not be under pressure like that. So, um, so I think, you know, that could be a good thing. Um, I also think that Jay Peak in particular has been um, really good at supporting their community. And so, you know, if they were to be purchased by, you know, one of those larger companies, I think it's really particularly important being located where they are in the Northeast Kingdom um, to be able to continue supporting their community, no matter who their um, their ownership what their ownership looks like. So, um, you know, I, I think either way it could be, you know, there's good and bad things about it, but, uh, I think that, um, you know, Jay is certainly very, very important to Jay and Burke, um, are important to their region. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, critically important that they are successful. You know, they are, they're driving business up there. They uh, employ a lot of people and they certainly uh, support their communities. So you mentioned the strength of Vermont's offerings on these various multi-passes. And I think if you go back and look at Vail's entry into the Northeast, there's a very good reason why they started with Stowe, because that's one of the top mountains in the region, um, if not the top mountain, depending on your perspective and the day, I guess, and how much snow they have. But um, we, we have now a lot of multi-pass choices, and, and Vermont has strong offerings on all of them. You have three mountains on the Epic Pass, three of the biggest, Okemo, Mount Snow, and, and Stowe. Uh, and then... Sugarbush and Stratton and Killington and Pico are all in the Icon Pass. And then the Indy Pass now has four Vermont ski areas, Magic Suicide 6, Bolton Valley, and Jay Peak. Uh, do you think these passes are good for the Vermont ski industry overall, Molly? Um, I do, because I think <clears throat> it's given people uh, a, an easier way to access some of these mountains. I mean, I think <clears throat> maybe the jury's out a little bit in terms of the long-term impacts on on the ski areas in terms of you know what that looks like financially but i think the more people we have that are uh, buying these passes and participating um, is is a good thing for the ski industry as a whole and as I, as we were just talking about with the strong offerings that um, we have in vermont you know if someone you know buys one of those passes and isn't a vermont skier they certainly have great reason to to try um the vermont areas so um, in that way i think i think they are good for vermont 
Do you think there's any risk of some of these ski areas being left off and left behind? Like maybe, for example, Smuggler's Notch or something that's it's right in between all of these ski areas that have these multi-passes? Well, I think it's it's a choice that they can make. Um, you know, Smuggler's is, is an interesting um, business case because they do have, you know, a very strong summer program and you know their a lot of their success comes from you know the the lodging that they have there and the programming that they have there so you know they're not i would say your typical ski area and many of the ski areas you know are different are different in that way they're they have a different base uh, business model and different ways that they do things um <clears throat> but i think you know the indie pass certainly the advent of that has given um, an entree for some of these, you know, maybe smaller ski areas to get on a shared pass like this. And as you mentioned, we've saw we've seen four of them do that. Now, Jay Peak um, had not been on the Indy Pass, you know, prior to this season. But, you know, looking at the significant challenges that I think they knew they were facing with the Canadian border closure, you know, that, that was another pivot that they made. To, to try to shore that up. But of course, you know, you're, you're bumping up against the travel restrictions too. So folks have, um, you know, that, that they need to, to, um, to deal with before they can come to Vermont. So I think the, the smaller areas definitely, um, you know, do have some choices in this landscape as well. Let's talk a little bit about the Vermont passport program in a typical year that would offer I believe free skiing, maybe there's a processing fee to fifth graders. Um, but talk about that program and why you weren't able to do it this year. Sure. Well, there was quite a bit of uncertainty this summer when we start lining that program up as to what the ski season was going to look like. But we were pretty sure that um, the ski areas were going to have um, you know, pressure on their peak days, uh, the weekends, the holidays, um, and so for that reason, you know, we spoke with our with our members and, you know, really said it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to um, to offer these um, when we know that that you'll have probably limited capacity and more pressure on weekends. So, you know, we would look at doing this more of a midweek program. But then when you're looking at a kids program that's only offered midweek non-holiday it's not really that useful, um, you know. So we just decided uh, that it really didn't make sense to offer that program, and a number of people were were pretty disappointed with that decision. Um, but I think we were in good company. Um, a number of of states. Um, this is a a program that is offered at a number of ski states across. I think most of the ski states across the country, and a number of them kind of saw the same thing we did that that it just didn't um didn't make sense to offer a a family or, or a, a kids program um that you couldn't take advantage of on the weekend so but we are looking forward to bringing that uh program back because it is an important one that helps families get out and ski do you have visibility yet and if you'll be able to do that for next season or is it too soon to tell it's a little too soon to tell but my hope is that we will i mean my feeling is that we will be able to bring it back next year so let's talk a little bit about Ski Vermont's diversity initiative. This is, I believe, in its third year. Tell us about this initiative and what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. Um, we're really trying to have a dialogue to understand the issue better and help our members understand the issue better <clears throat> and really the, the BIPOC um, point of view in terms of how they view our 
uh, our industry and how we can um, be more welcoming. You know, we started out by acknowledging that we absolutely do have a challenge in this area and, you know, we need to understand it better um, to be able to uh, improve it. And so we have created a plan to move forward and improve it and help our help our areas um, along as well. And and uh, I think we were careful to make sure that we did, you know, have a plan in place and that we were sort of moving before we issued um, any statements, just because I think you've seen that there has been criticism of some other, you know, industries or brands that, you know, have issued statements and then kind of like, okay, we're, we're done. We, we got that done. We, we checked that box and, you know, it's not that easy. I think, you know, I was certainly sensitive to the fact that I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to say, you know, we're just going to say the right thing here, um, but not put the work in um, to, to try to, you know, move this forward and make it better and really understand what it is we're dealing with. Well, two of those companies that made statements were Vail and Altera, and this happened in the wake of the nationwide protests following George Floyd's murder in May. Uh, collectively, those two companies operate five ski areas in Vermont, and they both, in, the, in their statements, these came from Vail uh, CEO Rob Katz and Altera CEO Rusty Gregory, they acknowledged their failures to better promote diversity in skiing, both as far as who's skiing and also people who are making a living in the ski industry. Uh, what did you think of those statements? Well, I think they were an, an, an honest acknowledgement, you know, of the issue and the fact that they understand that there's a lot that they don't understand. Right. And that's kind of an uncomfortable place to be, because I think typically, you know, before you go out, you, you want to have a plan. You want to know what the answer is. Um, and we don't in this case, you know, it's something that's going to take um, a lot of work and a lot of time to figure out. But I think, uh, you know, acknowledging that we understand that it is an issue and that it needs to be addressed is a, is a great place to start. And they, you know, they did uh, say that they are open, open to figuring it out and, and working towards making it better. It seems to me like one of the biggest obstacles we have to move past, at least in my experience, is there's, there's sort of a reflexive defensiveness sometimes. Uh, skiing, I think skiers consider themselves in general very welcoming. Um, and I think as a result, many recoil when they hear about programs like this because they take it personally. Um, I think acknowledging lack of diversity is not the same as accusing someone of being racist, but I think sometimes people take it that way and they just sort of like push back reflexively. Um, I, I don't know if you've encountered any of this, but but how do you think we move past this kind of defensiveness? Well, I agree that skiers and riders in general feel like the sports are welcoming. However, you know, we've heard that some of these groups do not view it that way. And so I think we just really need to acknowledge that um, that viewpoint and work on ways to make these groups feel welcome um, and that the mountains really are places for them too. If you look at Vermont, it's not a very diverse state, 94% white, 1.3% black. Uh, it would be easy to look at those numbers and say, well, of course, mostly white people are skiing in Vermont. Mostly white people live in Vermont. Uh, I think though that's missing the larger picture that the nation itself, including the states surrounding Vermont, are rapidly diversifying. Uh, why is it so important, Molly, for the long term that skiing attract a more diverse crowd? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, the mountains really should be accessible to everyone and we want them to be. 
Um, we want to share the sports that we love with everyone. And I, I think you do see that in the ski world, you know, between generations bringing, um, you know, uh, their kids up to, to ski and snowboard and, and love the sports and love the mountains. And we need to expand on that um, to folks that, as, as we've acknowledged, you know, don't see it as being as welcoming as it should be. And I think that many people feel that it is and don't understand what the issue is, but, you know, it's, we need to put ourselves in, in, um, you know, these groups shoes and, and understand why it is that, you know, they're not seeing people like themselves there. Um, that's a big part of it. And, um, I think the second thing is that by making our sports more welcoming, we can grow participants, which is great for them. And it's, it's really good for the sustainability of the industry. Um, you know, you, you touched on a key point, you know, Vermont may not be the, the most uh, diverse state right now. However, the metropolitan centers that we draw our skiers from certainly are. Um, and for that reason, there is a lot of potential for us to broaden the diversity of participants here in our state. And I think, you know, some of the ways that we're working on that um, are things like making sure that we do have good diversity um, in the marketing assets, you know, the photos that, that you see, the videos that you see. Um, so that people do see themselves um, and see that it is something that they can do, uh, making sure that we're uh, reaching out to, um, you know, uh, writers and influencers uh, of color um, so that they are invited when we do, you know, media events or media trips, things like that, um, so that they can experience, um, you know, what Vermont has to offer themselves and really convey, um, you know, how great it, it can be uh, to their audiences. So I think there, and that's just a couple of the things that we're working on, but there's, there, um, you know, are more in terms of, you know, you did touch on the, the employment issue and, and that's a tougher one. You know, we say like, oh, well, we put jobs out and, and people uh, don't, you know, people of color may not be applying for those, um, but it really takes more of an effort, I think, there than to just um, say, well, you know, we tried to hire people and, and we didn't get any interest. I think it's it, it goes deeper than that. And that's one of the things that that we really need to work on. All right. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a long term effort, but it's it's great to hear all the things that you're doing in that area. So, all right, Molly, well, thank you very much uh, for your time today and for all the effort you're doing on behalf of Vermont ski areas. And I really can't wait to get back up there next winter. So hopefully we can all move through this and pass this together. Yes, agreed. I appreciate your time as well. Thanks for the opportunity. That's Molly Mahar, president of Ski Vermont. I don't know about you, but I feel better after listening to that. That's some really good perspective. And while it doesn't diminish the very real challenges Vermont skiing is facing, it makes me optimistic that they're going to come through this intact. So thank you very much for that, Molly. And thank you all for listening. I've got some really cool episodes lined up. We're going to hear from Greg Fisher, general manager of Granite Peak, Wisconsin, and Charles Jefferson, managing owner of Montage Mountain, Pennsylvania. Two awesome ski states that I have not yet featured on the podcast. Pennsylvania especially is long overdue given our Northeast focus. There's a great ski culture out there. I've also got a surprise pod coming up. Big, big news coming down the line for Northeast skiing, and you are going to get the full story here first. This was probably the last COVID pod, but you never know. 
whatever we do in the future, subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com to get them as soon as they are live. You can also follow me on Twitter at storm ski journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The storm skiing podcast is a Quicksilver films production.